Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, Joshua 10 is where we're going to pick up. At chapter 10, I thought it might be good to like get our context of the whole book of Joshua again um, so that we know where we're at in the book and get a sense of that. So chapters 1 through 5, they're preparing to cross the river. They cross the river. It's this very painful step-by-step process where they come into a place called Gilgal where from there they're doing the conquest of the promised land. Chapter 6, they conquer their first city, Jericho. Chapter 7, they have a huge failure. Not only does the nation attack without permission from God, but they have an Achan who steals stuff from Jericho, and there's a, it's just a disaster. So they backslide. Chapter 8 is the redemption of the nation, and they get back on their feet, and they do it again. And then chapter 9 is the kingdoms allying and preparing to attack, which is what we did last week. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, that sets the context for 9, 10, and chapter 11. All three of those chapters are kind of one narrative together. Uh, And then you get this place where all of this is an image that Paul talks about that's a, a model or a mirror of our walk in the Christian faith. That there's a struggle, a step by step process that all of us had before we came into the kingdom. Then you come into the kingdom and you're wrestling with sin. You backslide. Then God says, I forgive you. Let's figure it out and get that sin out of our life. So when we look at the book of Joshua um, and then you look at the New Testament, there's tons of connections back to what it is. That makes this chapter a really interesting chapter. This is the montage chapter where they gleefully go about killing all of these cities and destroying things. If you look at it through a physical lens, it's an ancient world set of conquests, but there's things missing from a normal historical document that we'd expect to see here. If you look at it through a spiritual lens, it's an amazing chapter that speaks right to our heart and the things we have to do in our life to really start kicking butt for for the Lord and living out our faith in a neat way. So chapter nine, you got the Gibeonites are a part of the, they're one-fifth, of the the kings that decide to go attack Israel. They switch sides. They're like the little fish at the beginning of the chosen that turns blue and switches the other way. Well, then the black fish get really mad at the little teal-colored fish, right? Because they just switch teams. So that's what we get when we come to here. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he'd done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. They then were traitors to Adonai Zedek. They switched teams. So now we're going back to what started in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, and it's coming back to the, the bad guys, the enemies of Israel. What do they do when somebody switches teams? 
um, you would think they would just switch teams too. Like that'd be the logical thing is, well, let's just join Israel and be part of the nation. But that's not what happens. Um, but in verse one of this chapter, we get yet another clue that the word of what's happening, that what we've read as readers of these narratives from Exodus forward, that everyone in the region is also getting that narrative. Because we see that perspective in verse one of this chapter, they know God is at work. And it even says how Joshua had taken Ai and they utterly destroyed it. We know from the last few chapters, it's God that does the destruction. But this is through the eyes of Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem. So when he sees it, it's Joshua doing all the work. But we know that when Joshua talks about these conquests, it's the Lord doing all the work. And they simply get to come along for the ride. Adonai Zedek, we get lots of this tonight. In the Hebrew, that's actually a Hebrew translatable word. It means Lord of Righteousness. Interesting phrase, huh? When the Lord of Righteousness of the city of teaching peace, Jerusalem, also going to be a name that translates into the Hebrew, uh, we get a few clues here. Likely, the last part of the name Zedek means that Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, was a descendant of, of Melchizedek, who was the priest that served Abraham. Remember when Abraham was at this spot in the land and he got served by a priest that just kind of comes out of nowhere? He's an eternal priest of Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek then is could be the ancestor of Adonizedek, which means these people knew the Lord Yahweh at one point in their history and now they're not following the Lord Yahweh. The Lord of Righteousness, he's a false Lord of Righteousness. This is an anti-Lord or a false lord that comes in to go against the people of God. So uh, the, the Abraham thing, if you want to go back and do that this week for Bible study, that's in Genesis 14, is the story of Melchizedek. I won't go much further into it tonight. Jerusalem, teaching of peace, uh, is a city where we know these Canaanites are cousins of the children of Shem or Israel, uh, and its king, uh, I like the fact that it's the king too. It's not just that Jericho gets beat, but from his perspective or his land, it's Jericho and the king. Because if the people die, that's no big deal to the enemy. It's, but if the king's going to die too, well then now this is a problem. And I just thought that was there. It's hard to find, I know, extremely hard to find leaders that only care about themselves. But Adonai Zedek seems to be exhibiting traits where he pretty much cares about himself, and we see that through that line. So the Lord of Righteousness, teaching peace, is going to make war with the people of Israel. And we have that situation. Uh, Gideon it was among them. Um, and I love in this sense that from the outside, we know that Gideon, or the, I said Gibeon, the Gibeonites are doing water carrying and, and woodcutting duties, right? and that they were staying with the Israelites, but probably around the edges of the camp. From the enemy's perspective, they're on the same team now. They've taken up the name of the Lord Yahweh. They're in the same boat as that. So we have Gibeonites, which spiritually look like brand new believers that are now in the kingdom and in the camp. Is the enemy just going to let that happen, or is the enemy going to react to that? Verse 2, they, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and its men were mighty. So we don't see Gibeonites as weak, helpless people, right? The perspective of the world is that these are strong people that just got saved, that just, trans, that just switched teams. They're not the needy and the helpless. They are the folks that are fearful. And in verse 2, we see that they are feared greatly. The situation is 
they're acting out of fear, and that's why they attack. Um, and they should rightly be fearful. So the more boldly the news of people coming into the kingdom gets, the more the enemy gets worked up, and it's largely happening out of fear. It's a great city. It's an elder city, or magnitude is what that word implies. <clears throat> Not just big in terms of population, but big in terms of significance to the people of Canaan. This was a huge loss for them, and it was a loss that happened without a battle. When people get saved and they just give up their hearts to the Lord, it's not always a big fight. It's more of a release. Do you ever notice that? Like they're hanging on to something and then they let go of it and they can be they can let God into their life. And it's more of this that release thing. So um, it says it's like one of the royal cities. It doesn't say it is a royal city. Um, it's a subjective kind of thing. So it, we're seeing this through that lens. It says it's greater than, that's an objective thing. Because something being greater than, you just need to know what the context is for the subjective part of the sentence. Uh, this is bore out in archaeology. Gibeon was the largest of that Hivite set of cities. It wasn't the smallest. Um, and as an alliance goes up, um, we see that what we see in the archaeology really matches with these little phrases in each sentence. Uh, again, just those exact details, the naming of kings, the finding of coins, the fact that there's a Hivite group that had this many cities in it, all of those things add up because we're seeing that what's in the Bible is true and those things match up. So, but the point of verse two, if we want to understand the verse, the point is that Gibeon being a loss was something that made the other kings fearful because they lost who they thought were going to be their big people. Right? These were their warriors, and the warriors just switched teams. It'd be like going into a football game and your offensive line just decided to play for the defense. That'd be terrifying, because now you're looking at a lot of big people. So this is an important loss. It's like losing a throne. It's like the walls of Jericho going down. It actually gets a reaction that Jericho didn't get. So that's uh, what I'm trying to do is elevate in your eyes how important Gibeon was in this whole storyline. Verse 3, why would the Gibeonites throw it all away? Why would they serve God? Verse 3, they're going to react to the situation. Therefore, and that's the therefore. Whenever you see therefore, you got to ask what it's there for. Um, so going back, what it's there for is the Gibeonites just left the team. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon. They don't attack Israel. They attack the brand new people that just joined the team. And the enemy does that too. He doesn't go after the veteran believers. They don't go marching right up to the person doing the teaching. They come in and they go after the people that are the brand new believers in the room. Those are the ones they target and plant seeds of doubt. So they're going to go after Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. So they make peace, and the, the way to counter that is to give them war. And that's kind of how the world works. You want to just live in peace? The world wants to kind of come after that sometimes. So for the evil here, just associating with Israel is enough to tick them off. Just saying, well, I'm not going to attack Israel. I'm just going to let them you know, serve them. Uh, that's enough to get, be worthy of attack uh, so that they can attack Gibeon, a great city. The wicked prowl on every side, and when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Uh, Psalm 12, 8. 
We just see that happening here. They're just looking for reasons to come at Israel, but they're too cowardly to attack Israel directly because there's strength with Israel because God is with them. They're going to find out that God's also with those who switch teams, and that's going to happen really quick. So the predators, if you're looking for a naturalistic example, see this all the time. Predators go after the weak. So if you're looking in the herd, we saw that at the rodeo, they go after the baby calves. They don't try to gang tackle a grown, you know, a cow with its horns and what do you call those, steers? Bulls. Thank you for that word that was escaping me for some reason. Um, you go after the baby cows because the baby cows you can tackle. So that's what they're doing here. They go after the kids, the new believers. They go after the education systems. They go after the outliers and the newbies because they can. And that's the way the world works. Verse 5. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, and they and all their armies, and they camped before Gibeon and made war against it. Okay, you were thinking with verses 3, 4, and 5, I would go through each word and unpack it. I did. If you can find something there that's interesting, great. Just wait till the end of the chapter. Um, but I, I'm looking it up, and they're just the names of the kings. Um, so these are the five closest kings. All of these kings are within 20 miles of Gibeon. These are all neighbors. Um, there's two, uh, two perspectives here. Uh, one perspective is that they're attacking Gibeon, and your reaction could be, oh, no, we're doomed, and you could throw up your hands and say, the world is against us. The legislator just passed a new law. Oh my, worry, worry. And you can run around and be all distressed. Or perspective two, what a benefit that God is allowing the enemy to gather themselves together. And if they win this battle, they get five cities in one. It's like a deal. It's like going to the store and getting a three for one deal. So there's two perspectives here. And I would encourage you as the people of God to look at the gathering of the enemy in mass. Now they're just that much easier to beat because it's never about numbers when it comes to God. It's about God pretty much being the individual that will beat any number of human beings in any situation. So this becomes a huge advantage, and it saves us like four chapters as Bible students, because we don't have to do a chapter on Lachish and a chapter on Eglon. And a, we don't have to do that, because they all gathered together for us in a nice, tidy little group. So God is a salvation. Gibeon's surrounded and pressed on on every side which of course makes you think of kind of like 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 8, when it says, we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. Uh, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Gibeonites come into the kingdom, they've already given their life up at the, at the foot of Yeshua. And we do the same thing. My life's already forfeit. So if the enemy surrounds me and gathers around and attacks me, I either get to see what the Lord's going to do next, or I guess this is my time to go meet my maker. And the Gibeonites are in that situation. If that's the case, the only thing the Gibeonites should do, they don't prepare for battle against the kings. All they need to do is cry out to Joshua. That's the only thing that they've got because they gave their life to Joshua. So if their life's about to be exhausted because of the world, 
you just say, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, what would you like me to do? So verse 6, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, don't forsake your servants, come to us quickly, save us, help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. It's looking pretty bad, Joshua. And we're your new servants. So don't forsake us. They're calling on this new alliance. Um, save us and help us. They're not too proud to do that. If they're mighty, a la the previous verses, they could have probably put up a fight. It's You can defend a city generally with less people than it takes to attack a city. So if these are really mighty people, you'd think the Gibeonites could have fought this army off, but they don't. They're going to lean on God, and at the sign of the first attack, they run straight to Joshua, because that's what you do. So if you're discipling anybody into the kingdom, and they're just figuring out this, I want to live a life for Christ kind of thing, one of the first lessons you should teach them is, when things start looking bad, run to Jesus and let Jesus show himself to you. Let him save you from that situation and see what happens next. And I think for me, at least, that comes to lesson number one of this chapter for new believers. Lesson number one is light the beacons. Yes, that's a Lord of the Rings reference. When you feel like you're surrounded on all sides, send your hobbit up the little wood rack thing and get the beacons lit so that those beacons can go and send a message to a savior that's ready to come and save you. So this is what happens. Lesson number one, light the beacons. If you want help, you have to ask God for it. This happens with new believers when they're still struggling with sin. Pride, lust, greed, all the big ones, right? And they're like, man, I keep struggling with sin. And there's new believers that struggle with sin for 20 years. And they're still struggling with sin. And one of the things that you can do to counsel them is say, have you asked the Lord for help? And they'll always give you the knee jerk. Well, sure I have. No, 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 no. Have you woke up in the morning and said, Lord, help me get through today. And have you done that consistently, say, for 10, 15, 20 years? Because that's how to live a life with Christ, this daily sacrifice and knowing I can't beat this stuff without God, right? So deliver me, Lord, from my enemies, and you I take shelter, Psalm 143.9. When we're surrounded, we run into the shelter just like the little people ran into Helm's Deep and waited for their salvation to come. Like, there's so many comparisons because we're in a battle chapter, so Lord of the Rings fits because this is where Tolkien's pulling this stuff. The Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of his children in Israel. Um, Joel 3.16 Wherever this tribulation comes, whenever, you know, if you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, or pre-ref trib, or whatever, the Lord's going to be a shelter for his people. doesn't matter when all that other stuff goes on. And revelations last. We'll get there in 5 to 15 years. (laughs) God saves in his kingdom with the greatest power and the greatest conclusiveness when we're helpless. Because then we know it wasn't us, it was God. And it just keeps going that way. They will call on my name and I will answer them. This is a promise, Zechariah 13, 9. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. That's the relationship we're supposed to have. Gibeonites do the right thing, right? And Achan is still buried under a pile of stones. 
but the Gibeonites are on the right track. They call out to Joshua and they do it. This is a picture of our struggle. Don't miss that. Uh, we don't fight five kings, but there's lots of things we have to deal with in life. In fact, our own heart is one of the toughest battles we have when we first get saved. We've got to change our heart. But we cling to salvation. We cling to these promises. Whoever calls on my name, I will answer them. And I can say from my own testimony, this works. But there's no way for me to say that in your life until you experience it. When you call on the name of the Lord, it works. And I would say the word Jesus actually has power to it too. And the Bible backs that up. Call on the name of the Lord using the word Jesus. He is my salvation and he saves us from, our, from these things in our times of trouble. Verse 7. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal. Why? Because he's an image of Jesus. And he's not just, he's going to ascend from Gilgal. Geographically, that's correct. He's going upwards in elevation. He and all his people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, don't fear them, for I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So in verse 8, we get the sense. Verse 8 is in the past tense. And this is tough for people. This is not a mistake in the Bible. Verse 8 is in the past tense because apparently Joshua consulted God before he ran off, but the importance of the passage is that he ran to save them. Does that make sense? So he's not making the same mistakes he's done in past chapters where they just run off and do things. And he's taking everybody he can with him, all the people of war. He's not going with a small elite force. They're going together. And the Lord's given him a promise like this is it. And the Lord's like, I'm going to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver them all. It's like a gift package. Five in one deal, Joshua. I'm just doing this for you. Saving you a lot of hiking. That's how I would have, because I'd have been the chunky soldier. And now I only have to make one march instead of five marches. This is a good deal. So they are going to take off and do this uh, in the past tense. Option one, they did have an option here. Think of this. If the five kings destroy the Gibeonites... This solves the, the trick that the Gibeonites played on them in previous chapters. They could have just let them get killed. And now they're not obligated to have covenant anymore because they're all dead. Right? Like, let's, let's think really manipulatively here. They could have just let this thing play out and it would have solved the whole situation. But they consult the Lord. The Lord says, go, and they go. And th I think that's option two is, if God says save them, we're going to save them. But not only that... We're going to run hard at what God's given us a yes on. So when God gives us the yes, we're going full steam, full bore ahead. And the journey they take from Gibeon, from Gilgal to Gibeon, is almost a flat run to make the timeline that we've got here. So they get their stuff, they grab their weapons, and it's a full-on run. And I just love that image. Last of the Mohicans, when the guy is running to save the girl. I don't know if you've seen this movie. If you haven't, it's a great scene. But you think of that scene where he's just at a full run because there's nothing that matters than to getting to his bride and saving her. And I love that image of Jesus just, we call for help. It's all hands on deck. The army moves and they're at a full run to get there. It says, do not fear them. Instruction number one. By the way, don't fear them. Just do a simple word search. 252 times in the Bible. Don't fear and isn't that the biggest struggle we have when we're going to share our faith? We're going to do, we're going to stand on things as we just worry about what people think all the time. It's so relieving to let that go and just be a geek. 
Like, just do it. Try it. It really doesn't matter what people think. Unless they hit you, that hurts. But don't go there. Then you're being annoying. So it's simple. Don't fear them. You're going to serve whatever you fear. There's no way around it. You serve what you fear. You serve what you spend your time on. You serve what you spend your money on. So don't fear them. It's a command to not fear. I'm going to dwell on that idea a little bit because when we go into spiritual battle, fear's the thing that trips us up every time. So we can fear things and still do God's work. They could run after this and, and still be doing what God told them to do. But when the command is to not fear, that's a thing of the heart that has nothing to do with our actions. We could go to the state fair on, on the 5th and go with the spirit of fear, but we won't have any fruit. So we could do the action and still have our hearts be in the wrong place. That's possible to do that. So do not fear those that kill the body, but those that kill the soul, because rather it, we should fear the Lord who's able to destroy both the body and the soul, Matthew 10, 28. We can run towards God's calling in our life full steam, and the only thing the world can do to us is kill us. And that's kind of cool because we get to be with the Lord. So when you put things in that context, you become a soldier in the kingdom of God, fearless, without reservation. So they're able to run there. I want to point out they don't have a plan. In the past, God's told them, step up to the water, move the ark, put the priests here, do this, go up to AI. Remember the battle of AI? He had some of them hide behind the city and there's an elaborate plan. Now that he's coached Joshua and the Israelites in, there's no plan here. Just run. Go there and I'll take care of it when I get there. And we'll see God's got a plan. But So it looks unorganized, but it's not because God's completely organized. But no strategy, no step-by-step. God just says go and they go. Um, it looks impulsive, but it's just obedience. Does that make sense? People say I'm not organized and they're actually pretty much right most of the time. But every now and then, it's not disorganization. It's following the Lord God. Like, this is what we need to do. So loving and following God is the plan. And we have to coach people in on that, right? Or Zach, where he's like, that's not how we do it. That's not how we do it. But we kind of, um, how we do do it is we, we're just here to study the word of God. And we focus on doing this every week and everything else is out of the abundance of that. And that's kind of a great place to be. We abide in God. We worship God through the study of his word. We sacrifice our time every Sunday night to study his word. And then maybe some stuff on the sides too. We feast and we meditate on God's word. Those are the things we're told to do. And those are acts of war when it comes to the spiritual battles in our life. And I'm like, thank you, Lord, for making war so easy to conduct and such a blessing to do it. Our focus on God is made perfect in our loving relationship with God. And when we love God vertically, Everything happens horizontally so much easier. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. If I really love God, I don't have room for fear in my life because I'm so excited about my relationship with the king. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love, 1 John 4.18. Perfect fear casts out love. Can you see that in this story? God says, go save the Gibeonites and grab my sword, let's go. And there's no fear, there's no plan, there's no hesitation. It's just there. The world doesn't fear God and we don't fear the world. Equal playing field. I don't fear the world, the world needs to fear God or they don't need to fear God and we'll see who wins at the end. And God by, has already told us who wins so we get that's kind of like cheating almost. We get the end of the book first. 
The command is coupled with a promise. Notice it says, for I have delivered. It's unique, but now we're seeing it's a pattern. When God speaks, it's done in the present tense, past tense, future tense. In this case, I have delivered is in the past tense. You go, Joshua, because I've already delivered them into your hands. In other words, God's already put things in work for this thing to happen. It's already been done. It's outside of times, and God's will is done when God wants it done because he's all-powerful. So we have this promise that goes with the don't fear. We get actually the exact same promise. This is not just the Israelites back a few thousand years ago. We're given the same promise in 1 John 5, 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Your faith in God, it's already overcome the world. It's done. You've beat the, you've won the game already. So everything else comes out of an abundance from that. There's also this idea of fear being unbelief. If we fear things, it's because we really don't believe those promises. And that could be really convicting. Like there might be a lot less people here next week. But if you're fearing things, it's because you doubt God. There's no room for both of them in the same heart. So when you feel fear come on your heart, you stop for a second and say, Jesus, get rid of my fear. Help me just get rid of it because I can't get rid of it myself. I can't do my own heart surgery. I got to have God do that. So Joshua's running into battle. He has God's word and he goes on God's word. Not a man of them shall stand is the promise so they don't stand. They're going to run and they're going to move towards it. Verse 9, Joshua, therefore, therefore came upon them suddenly. The therefore is because he's running. He moves quickly to ascend. That connotation, that connotation is in the word ascended. So he's marched from, and having marched all night from Gilgal. The trip from Gilgal is typically a three-day walk. So to make a three-day walk in one night, they're at a full run. That's the only way to make that trip. So in verse 9, when they point that out, they're trying to tell us, that's because they were moving at a pace. And this is an army of men all doing it together. Joshua is transformed. He's figured out how to consult God in all things. He's got a swift confidence. The great effort that gets put out here is he's gone from God to go and then the endurance of running all night. I can barely run five minutes. These are men that are in great shape. Maybe 40 years in the wilderness got them ready for this kind of thing. Maybe all that struggle prepared them physically for what God had for them to do. Maybe the spiritual battles you have in your life are to prepare you for the warfare that you're going to go into later in life. All of it. So God's going to do everything, but their job is to run and have grit in doing it. Run and don't stop and don't quit and do it with a, a decision. The Gibeonites are strong people, and God makes some people strong. And that's okay. And I almost feel like that's like the antithesis of American culture right now. It is okay to have a resolute heart that is strong and full of life and ready to move forward. And you save and love the people that have given themselves to God too. And you throw yourself on the altar for the sake of others because that's what we're made to do. We're, we're born to do that. It says suddenly because they get there and they surprise them. So part of the plan is the kings attacking Gibeon had no, it didn't even occur to them that Israel might march against them. And it didn't occur to them that they would do it at a full run. These were their enemies not long ago, right? So they just hung up the phone on their new covenant and said, okay, God, I mean, they just texted the paperwork back and forth, got it signed. 
the five kings of Adonai Zedek are, they couldn't, why would they ever think the Israelites would sacrifice themselves for the Gibeonites, right? The Gibeonites tricked them. But the love of God sees past the sins and trespasses of others. And once we're in together, once the paperwork's signed, I've got my DocuSign thing, you've made, given your life to the Lord, we're on the same team, I'll die for you. And that's exactly what Israel does. The love here, giving their own lives for this battle and running towards it, I love this image. I can't get over it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one person receives the prize? Run in such a way that you might obtain it, 1 Corinthians 9.24. Can you just picture all these men of war, these men of valor, and they're all racing to get to their own death, their own battle? And, and, and I got to think they're competitive about it. Like, who can get there first? And as we're a body of believers studying the word of God together, like, who's going to be the next one that disciples somebody into their faith? Who's going to be the next one to lead a Bible study? Are we running our lives in such a way that we're ready to take on the work that God has? He says that the, the fields are ready for harvest and the, the workers are few. And it's like, okay, well, you got one here, Lord. What do you want me to do? Where should I go? Send me. So God does love the Gibeonites. The answer is yes. He loves the Gibeonites. Even though they came in sin, they humbled themselves, they repented, and God's all over saving them, and he's sending his people to do it. God sends his best men to save the least of the people in the church. If one person is struggling, everybody else goes to bat for him. Awesome image. Joshua himself gets sent to do it. If the world is dying in sin, what does, the what does this say about the character of God? What would we expect of God if the whole world is on its way to hell? Not only is he going to send his best, he's going to send his own son. Because that's what God does. And we get to see that image in this chapter. It's wow. Verse 10. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Asaka and Makeda. Notice this is not bloodthirsty killing, right? They are killing people here. That's tough for some people, but they're actually defending Gibeon and willing to take some shots while they do it, right? So if you're going to see people going after children and trying to make them question their faith when they're 10, oh, it's time to have some throwdown with those people. Not okay. And we protect those folks. The Lord routed is also in the passage. So verse 10, God shows up. The Lord routes them, throws them into confusion. When people are confused, that's bad with swords. So when you get an army coming over the hill, then they are all start running about, and that's not a good thing. The king's plans turn into a mess. God's plans turn into an absolute rout. So they run after it. God does the work. I like that we do that too. We completely rely on God. It says before Israel. God's doing this before is that panim word. It means he's doing it in the face of Israel. He's doing it so Israel can see what he does. When there's a major battle, we light the beacons, we watch to see what God's going to do. It's just this great progression. So it says, rout, killed, chased, struck, all sorts of bad things happen to Adonai Zedek and the kings. Beth Horon means the house of caves, or it's a place of hiding. They ran for the caves when God's people shows up. This is an interesting image, and it's going to build what's happening in this chapter. Azekah and Makeda are about six miles away. So not only do the Israelites run all night to get there, then they chase them another six miles to finish the work that God's put in front of them. Do you think they're exhausted? Absolutely, they're exhausted. 
but it's worth it. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, weight Hebrews 12.1, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. God says your race is to get rid of sin in your life, the sin of action, and to deal with the temptations that we have every single day. Deal with it. Get it taken care of. As it happened, they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, the place of caves, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Asaka, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Again, they're making the point that God's doing most of the killing here, not the people of Israel. Um, they just run. Like Their only job is to run the race. And in doing that, they get to just be part and see what God's doing. So the mighty men of valor that come with Joshua pretty much don't do anything but yell and scream after them, and God starts doing it. So as they fled, they're capturing a detail in verse 11 of what's happening during verse 10. So there's a narrative storyline here, and verse 11 is explaining what happened in verse 10. The hailstones that come down, you can look that up in Hebrew. It means great stones. It means kind of what we think it does. Um, but the, the, the word there, eben, uh, is actually also the word for real stones. So we think of hailstones in Minnesota, and we think of ice, correct? That's not necessarily what's coming out of the heavens here. The claim here is that there are actual stones coming out of heaven, not necessarily ice chunks. So this is a really interesting thing. Um, it's IDing itself as a miracle. There's nothing here that they're pretending that this was some natural event. Or if it was a natural event, God's got really good aim. Um, so this is tough. The, the word Eben has to do with rock or metals coming out of heaven. So it could be that there's ores coming out of heaven. There aren't any necessarily any volcanoes around this part of the world. Uh, so we don't know where the stones came from. It says that they came from heaven. If we take the word at face value, it says they came from heaven, which further identifies it as a miracle. Like it, they, it doesn't say that it came from a volcano or that they came from earth. It says they came from the heavens. So then you think, are there, is there such a thing as rocks that come out of the heavens that did not generate an earth? And the answer is absolutely. We call them meteors. They happen regularly. The moon is pockmarked with them. Uh, and most meteors can't get through our atmosphere. They burn up in the atmosphere. But when they do get through the atmosphere, they can do really big, bad things. Many people think the Gulf of Mexico is a giant crater um, for, that, that started various periods of, of things on the earth. So a great hail falls from heaven. Uh, this is going to happen again. The only other place it happens in the Bible is Revelation 16.21. This is going to happen at the end of days. There will be great hail that falls from heaven. At that point, we're told the size. They'll each be worth the weight of a talent, which is 75 to 100 pound stones coming out of the heavens. So a meteor shower with really good godly aim. So if you get hit in the head with a 100-pound rock coming out of the sky, you're dead. And that's just going to happen. You're dead, and you might even just get incinerated. Um, so even if this is naturalistic, the timing of it is a miracle. The location of it is a miracle, and the fact that it's accurately hitting people on a regular basis is a miracle. So this is another one of those situations where there isn't really a naturalistic explanation. God and the Bible are claiming that this is a miracle that happened. So the Canaanite gods, uh, oddly enough, in this particular area, are the gods of earth and air. 
<laughs> and so God aces them with their own godly power claims, uh, as he did in Egypt, by the way. He's doing the same thing here. He's taking their religion and using it against them. Like God has kind of a sense of humor, but I don't want to make light of the fact that people are getting... Yeah, okay. They're getting just totally decimated by these rocks coming out of the sky. And the Israelites ch are still chasing after them. I would stop and back off a little bit. Like, I wouldn't want to get that close. Because what if it hits here? Think of the faith it takes for them to chase them six miles and the hailstones are falling in front of them. And they're running into the area with the hailstones. That says something about what God expects of his people or what he adores in his people when they can run fearlessly and trust that they're not going to get hit by the same stone. I mean, they're running past the stones all six miles and seeing all that happen. I just like this. Makeda, um, uh, 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 oh, Azekah, we'll get into that first. The Hebrew for Azekah is dug over or buried. It's the same root word that was used for Achan when he was buried in stones. You see the parallel? This is just, everything fits. So there's some meaning here implying that these people that are enemies of God are, will be buried in the earth. And that's their, that's their fate. Uh, so the five kings' trouble is going to end in being buried in stones. Achan's trouble ended with being buried in stones. Same image. So Makeda is not used in this verse, but it is used in verse 10. Makeda isn't a nice fit for this verse, which is where we get the clue to start looking up the meanings of the words, because Makeda means the place of shepherds. So if you have false kings that go into a place of shepherds, that's going to be a clue of something that's happening or some spiritual lesson here. So lesson number one was light the beacons. Lesson number two, Jesus saves. And Yeshua comes to their rescue and he saves them. So God moves literally the heavens and the earth to save his children. And you just think, oh, that's where that phrase comes from. Hailstones being earth coming out of the heavens. Then verse 12. Uh, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, so he's proclaiming this out loud where all the, the, the warriors can hear it. Sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ahazelon. And so the sun stood still, boom, 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 and the moon stopped till the people had a revenge upon their enemies is this not written in the book of Jasher? Oh, there's so much there. Okay. We have... Uh, <laughs> you could deal with this in a few different ways. One is dealing with the fact that the sun stops and the moon stops. Uh, this is a major problem for physicists. Suns don't stop and moons don't stop. If the Earth stopped, we would fly off into space at about 30,000 miles per hour. Uh, but it's, so the constant rotation of the earth actually keeps us on the earth. Uh, but the sun stopping, that causes all sorts of other problems, like the earth spinning off into space at hundreds of thousands of miles, light years per hour. So the fact that this isn't a request that God makes of God, he commands in the name of God, uh, which is really difficult if you don't break down the fact that Joshua is an image of Christ. So Joshua seems to be getting more power here than any human we've seen in the Bible. That he makes this request and God actually listens to it. This is not a model for us to think we can ask the sun to stand still and that God will do that. In fact, there's no other place in the Bible where a person or character in the Bible shouts out that something should happen and it happens except for Jesus Christ. He's the only other example of this kind of power being given to a human. 
right? In every other situation, it's in the name of Jesus that these things happen. Or God requests and God does something, right? So Joshua speaks. He wants more time for the battle to play out so that this can, that his five-in-one deal can all happen in one shot. He doesn't ask for God to do it for him, but he asks for it to be done directly. So he quotes another book, the book of Jasher. So I'm getting the least interesting parts first. For me, just for me, this makes me want to go to heaven. You mean there's books that aren't in the Bible that the Bible acknowledges? And there's a few spots like this throughout the Bible where they name some book. That means there's probably libraries in the Bible that I get to go read after I get there. So when I go to heaven, you know where I'm at. I'm either playing with the bears that are now friendly towards humans, or I'm in the library reading the book of Jasher because it's there and I want to see what it is. God didn't choose to include the book of Jasher in the Bible, so it's not necessarily the word of God. So if we dug it up out of a pit somewhere, some secret, hidden, revealed text or epistle or whatever, it's not in the Bible because God didn't want it in the Bible. So even if we dug this up at Quran or something like that, or the Qumran scrolls, they found a book of Jasher segment, I wouldn't like base my whole faith on that. But when I get to heaven, I want to see what's in there. So the sun stood still in the midst of the heaven, and did not hasten to go down for a whole day. So this could easily be one of the top five like in, in size miracles that the Bible has, and it's only a verse or two. And I think that's kind of cool too. God spends way more time on the heart than he does on these physics miracles. So the sun standing still, one possibility here is that this is anthropomorphic language. We know that suns don't stand. They revolve, they're in there, but to say that an orb in, in space stands is a humanizing of the object, right? This table speaks to me. The table doesn't actually speak, but there's an anthropomorphic ascribed personality to an inanimate object. So the language here uses that. So some people take this passage and say this is an anthropomorphic version of the sun standing still that there is a sun that rises, but it's not actually rising. And the sun sets, but it's not actually setting. In fact, the sun is less mobile than the earth. It just appears that it's rising and setting. So when you say the sun stands still in the sky, another way to take this verse, way number two is, well, the sun always stands still in the sky. So maybe this is kind of like Csikszentmihalyi's sense of flow. Maybe they're just saying, Lord, help us get a ton done in this amount of time. Like when you got a paper due that you got to write, or you got a project you got to get to, and you're like, Lord, I just need this time to help me get this done. And then it just feels like you got all the time in the world, like time slows down and time speeds up, but it doesn't actually speed down and slow up. It's our head that does that. And some of you would be angry with me if I didn't give you the third option, which is God created the universe. If he wants to stop or move an orb, he can, because he made it in the first place. And that's a far bigger miracle than him moving things around and making gravity happen here and not over here. And the Bible seems to be claiming one of those three things, right? This is there. Any way you look at it, the perception of Joshua is that he had more time to finish the battle. And God made that happen. And he allowed that to happen. So there are theories out there. If you really want to dig into them, you can. They're kind of fun because it's people really stretching on both sides. You got the atheist stretching to explain how impossible this all is. But if you believe the first sentence of the Bible, in the beginning God created, you, it's, you can kind of toss those to the side and think, atheists, go do something in your own religious point of view. Stop putting your foot in our world. Like, why is it so important to you? If you don't believe there's a God, why are you even reading the Bible? Um, 
Or you got, I think, some believers desperately trying to make this work with physics, which is, let's kind of admit, that's hilarious. Are you that insecure in your faith that you have to go do that with all of your time? Why don't you spend more of your time loving your neighbor or telling them where, the, admonishing your neighbor when there's sin in their life? Build disciples and tell them to follow the Lord. But you got people that have written whole books on, on how this is possible. And well, it's possible that the that the sun actually shifted in the sky and the earth and the moon perfectly shifted at the same time, like through a meteor passing, which would have made the hailstones, and all of this could actually physically work. And then they use lots of science that I don't understand. I tried to, but I don't. Um, either way, the point in verse 13 is that God can move the heavens and the earth to help his people. And that's what the Bible is trying to say here. The Bible doesn't make any effort to explain it because the Bible assumes that God's all-powerful. That said, I know that some of you will be going home and looking up the physics of how this could possibly work. And for those of you that understand that, it could be fairly interesting. And some of those believers, I think we're perhaps called by God to do that just for you because you need to hear how that can happen. Um, verse 14, And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Verse 14 drives home that point that this is really unique. And what's unique isn't the sun standing still. What's unique is that Joshua commanded something and the Lord answered it. And that that hasn't happened again. And it won't happen again. In part because Jesus, though fully man, is also fully God. And so when Jesus does this, it's not the same as when God does this through Joshua so that we can have an image of how much God loves his people and how he, was, he is anxious and ready to save. The uniqueness then isn't the miracle, it's, it's Joshua's request. Um, and we should know that. This is a big deal when it comes to our prayer life. God doesn't typically jump in just because we ask him to. He's not obligated to. And that's a terrifying thought for some people that when we ask God for things and we pray for things, that we don't have some power to make God do things. He's not a puppet on our strings. It works quite the opposite. So sometimes we ask God for things and, and, and in fact, doesn't answer them because how arrogant to think that he would. Um, we kind of come to God and say, how can we help? What can we do? So frankly, for a believer, this idea that God would move heaven and earth isn't really that uncommon at all that God would stop the stun in the sky because he loves you that much, that's not uncommon. We've all seen it happen in our own lives. And if you haven't seen it happen in your own life, pray for it. Ask the Lord to show you that, reveal it to you. That do things in front of your face too. There's been no day like that. When we work with God, and I think this is the beauty of being post-Jesus, we see God do things all the time. And we see God open doors all the time, and we just love that. So then Joshua returns and Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Verse 15, scene is over. That part of the chapter is done. They return to their home base. And still you have these other kings from the far north and the five south. So in verse 16 it says, but these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave of Makedah. So the kings, these evil kings, went to the place of shepherds and hid themselves at the place of shepherds. And it was told to Joshua, saying the five kings have been found hiding in the cave at Makedah. So lesson one, light the beacons when you're in trouble, ask for help. Lesson two, Jesus saves. He'll move heaven and earth to do it. And lesson three is going to be this next passage. Evil can't really hide. There's no place for it to like escape or run away. 
Like at some point when you get to this point in your faith where you're actually winning some victories, keep going until it's gone. Don't relent on this stuff. So Joshua's going to do this. I love how Joshua's going to react to these hiding kings. Um, but Rahab and the Gibeonites, here's option one, they deal with the rise of, of Yeshua by joining Yeshua. I think that's the rational thing to do. Millions of people migrate out of this part of the world that we know there's people that run from God. And then three, you've got these kings that are going to defy God's people and challenge them. So you got those three people. So they assault the new lambs. Joshua's mighty to save. And now Joshua's on the offensive. Now that he's got them, he's going to finish them. And this is the wrath of Joshua. So these five kings are, are told to be there. So the enemies of God are hiding in the place of shepherds. You see the image there? Okay, so Joshua says, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And don't stay there yourselves. Don't stay and guard it. Like, you just put men, assign them to guarding it, and then take off. Go pursue the enemies, attack their rear guard, and don't allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Finish what we started here. Don't get distracted because the kings of the enemy have gone into hiding somewhere. Finish dealing with the armies first. And so these kings are, are hiding and the people are thinking they're the bigger threat. Joshua knows the truth. They're not the bigger threat. The armies are what we were told to go do. So if we go after the kings, we're actually disobeying God. We were told to take care of these armies. So they do. And don't miss the image that the false kings are being put in a tomb with a stone rolled in front of it with guards set in front of them. And they're going to come out of that tomb, but not under their own power, right? So don't, don't miss the fact that the false king is having an experience that the real king will also have. So when Joshua shows up, the enemy runs and hides. It delays the day of judgment for them, but the day of judgment is coming for them. But there, he, Joshua just says, we're not going to deal with them yet. Just like Jesus says, we're not going to deal with some evils yet. I'll deal with that when I return. Got it? All right, so vengeance is not the priority. God's word is the priority. Joshua's resolute in that, nothing but God's word. The false lord of righteousness is going to lose, and, but they'll be dealt with in a later time. So the kings of the earth do the same thing when Jesus returns. This is all paralleled in the New Testament. In Revelation 6, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountain. This is after Jesus comes back to conquer. And said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne from the wrath of the lamb. So in the place of shepherds, you've got kings hiding from the wrath of Joshua at the end of days you'll have them hiding in caves, avoiding the wrath of the lamb instead of being the shepherds that they're calling themselves. Like all of this is such a nice fit. That's why I can't wait to get to Revelation because once you've studied the rest of the Bible, Revelation starts to make a lot more sense. So think of that, the rest of this chapter in terms of the end of days. Battle's been won. Jesus, Joshua's conquered. Verse 20. Then it happens, while Joshua and the children of Israel made a end of the slaying with them, there was a great, very great slaughter. I'll read that again. Of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished. That's where you get that point, they had finished, that that's what was important. Finish what you start. That those who escaped entered fortified cities and all of the people returned to the camp to Joshua and Makedah in peace 
and no one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. At some point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We get that kind of mirrored here in Joshua. Nobody speaks against Joshua. Because when he said, guys, we got to go, and then that just happened, they got to see that before their faces, nobody's going to challenge Joshua. We're going to go when he says to go, stop when he says to stop, wait when he says to wait. So not moving your tongue against someone is a sign of submission. It's easy to serve at the workplace, but when your boss says something you don't agree with, our tendency is to wag our tongue against our boss. So when you're not even moving your tongue against someone, it shows just completely a fidelity of heart that I, I'm going to even control my tongue when it comes to talking about that person. So, and I like the idea that when we come into the presence of God to open his holy word, even in a coffee shop or a living room, that we come with a heart of surrender to God. That we come and to open that book with just, we're not even speaking against God in any way. We're here to hear what God has to say to us. And I just like that image. So remember the law in Deuteronomy 21.18. It's going to help with the next passage. Um, actually, I'll read it in a little bit. Um, but they're essentially going to apply the law that we got back in Deuteronomy to the, this situation. So Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so, and they brought out the five kings to him from the cave. And the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And so it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all of Israel and said to the captains and the men of war who went with them, come near and put your feet on the neck of these kings. And they drew near and they put their feet on the necks. And Joshua said to them, don't be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and of good courage for the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on the five trees. And there they were hanging on the trees till evening. So it was at the time of going down that the son that Joshua commanded that they took them down from the trees and cast them into the caves where they had hidden. And they laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. Oh, there's so much here. So a footstool. When someone becomes someone else's footstool, it's not hard for us to imagine that in ancient days that was a sign of total defeat and total surrender. Because if I'm going to lay on the ground and let somebody put their foot on my head, that's dirty and messy and icky and it's not a pleasant place to be, even if we're doing it in fun. Like, you don't see kids reenacting these situations very often. Not only that, it's an incredibly precarious situation because a little bit of pressure and you're done. So they're putting their life at the feet of others. We're commanded to put our lives at the feet of Jesus. These kings are forced to do this where we're volunteers and we do this. Um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool, Psalm 110. The Lord shall send the rod of strength out of Zion. Rise in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning until you have the dew of your youth. The reference to the sun here, this whole scene is kind of an epic scene that ends this conquest of the middle promised land. That they're all submitting to God and they're seeing this. So even the enemies are submitting to God and the people of Israel are submitting to God. One is a positive situation, one is not. But the law is clear, and Joshua is going to make that point, that those that defy God are going to get judged by God. And God uses his people as an instrument to do that. In this situation, the captains don't kill the kings. Notice that. He calls for the men in verse 24. They put their feet on their necks, 
Joshua lets the captains and the people of Israel have the victory, and they get to be part of the victory, but Joshua does the killing. Do you see that? And this is a big deal because then it fits with the New Testament. We don't go out killing people. That's not what we do. But God allows us to see and have victories both spiritually and actually physically in the world. But it's not necessarily our job to do that that judgment role. That's what God gets. Judgment is mine, says the Lord. So uh, they've learned that you got to be really careful handpicking which laws of God you're going to obey and which ones you aren't. But in this situation, you've got kings that have defied the law of God, so they're guilty of that, they've been shown guilty of it, and they're going to obey the law, which means, here's what you do in Deuteronomy 21:18. when you have defiant children, you bring them to the gate, their defiance is shown before all people, and then they're executed, executed and it's a public execution. So what you have here is that you have defiant children of the world, kings, that defy God, they're shown publicly to do that. They do this public display thing, and they're all executed. Uh, there's another one that says you don't hang somebody on a tree overnight. So they take them down from the tree because this isn't about vengeance, and it's not about cruelty. It's about a public display of what happens to those who defy God, right? So, but even better, this whole thing's a chiasm. And if you want, I'll give you just a second to see if you can find it. And those of you that are new, we have some new people. A chiasm is a literary format where you take the outside and you, you work parallel passages and you keep paralleling them until you have a singular passage in the middle, which is what gets the exclamation point or this is the moral of the story and it goes in the middle. So chiasm is kind of a sandwich. This is before they had italics. So this is a way to put italics or emphasis on a sentence when you do it. So I'm going to do my best. Here's the chiasm. And by the way, there's chiasms in almost every book in the Bible, which is why we keep running into them. If you look at verses 22 and 23, it has them bringing them out of the cave. And in verse 27, it has them putting back into the cave. So you've got KV references. Then you see displays of victory in the feet on the necks in verse 24 and the hanging on the trees in verse 26, which makes verse 25 the middle of the chiasm which is do not be afraid or dismayed. Now, we just read over that, and so we missed it, but let's not read over that. That's the point of the whole thing, and it seems to be a theme in Joshua. We can call it a theme in Joshua, right? Do not be afraid. Be strong and of good courage, which is the opposite of fear and dismay. For those who will do to all your enemies, the Lord will do this to all your enemies against whom you fight. No matter what battles you have, this is the end result. And you may have to wait a while to see that end result, but you may have to run to see the end result. You might have to have some grit to see that end result. Um, but that is what God has promised. The word will do is in that sentence. That's really important because that just changed this from a historical sentence to a prophetic sentence. It doesn't say that God just did those things. It says God will do those things. And it's in the future tense and it's in a perfect future tense which means this is not just a prophecy for those hearing it in that time of, of history. It's a prophecy that goes forward into all of eternity. So if you're taking the word at face value, then this is a promise that applies to you and me just as, as much as it did to the people who heard it in real life. Is that kind of cool? Like, take that sentence and meditate on it for a while and think what that means for your life. Don't be afraid or dismayed. God's going to handle it. 
be strong and courageous. He tells us how to be. So if you're like, what does God want me to do in my life? Start with that one. There's one thing that says this is what God wants you to do. Start working on being stronger and more courageous. Go into a public space and start telling people about Jesus. It's really easy until somebody gets mad at you, right? And just realize life goes on and I'm thick-skinned. We're going to have a bunch of street ministers. Not everyone's called to street ministry, Amy. I know you want them all to be, but not everybody is. Be strong and courageous. You're all called to that. Have some guts. For thus is in there. False kings die. When false kings hang on a tree, they're taken down and thrown in a cave. When real kings hang on a tree and get thrown in a cave, they bust out after three days, right? That's how we know who the Messiah is. And we get our very first hint. It's called progressive revelation. The Old Testament progressively gives vague references to Messiah. And as we get to Malachi and Isaiah, they're very specific references to Messiah. But here we get this really vague, big revelation that this is what happens to false kings. So when Jesus independently gets himself out of a cave, he's going against this principle, which makes him not a false king, makes him the real king. Joshua does this in the physical world. Jesus does it in the spiritual realm. We get victories. Jesus gets to be the final judge of souls. He gets the vengeance, and we get to watch it all happen. Everybody who's ever done anything mean to you in your life, that bully in fourth grade, you get to watch that justice play out at some point in history. What an amazing thing. And the rest of us can even hang out with you when you kind of see that play out. And the best kind of justice is that bully actually converts to Jesus Christ and becomes your best friend in heaven for all of eternity. Wouldn't that really be the best kind of justice? Is that the heart turns? But for the lack of that second best justice is they're going to get theirs for being a mean person. And God will do that. He'll take care of it. You don't have to. All your enemies. If we don't name our sins and ask for help, there is no promise that gets fulfilled. If we don't name our sins and ask Jesus for help, there is no promise that we'll ever conquer those sins. So the condition of this, of all of our enemies, is we actually have to know who our enemies are. We have to pick them. And my enemy, for instance, is laziness. I hate it, and I want to kill it. I won't die physically if I keep working all the time. I might get tired and weary, but I'm not broken. And, and, and I'll do that as long as I can. Like when I'm 70 or 80 and we're still in, you know, Malachi, like, <laughs> tell me if I can keep up that pace. But at some level, it's like, well, wait, I don't have to stop. I can study the Bible till 11.30 at night or 2, as my wife doesn't like when I do that because my office is in the bedroom, as you all know. All your enemies against whom you fight, that's a limitation on this promise. You only get victories over that which you fight. If I just succumb to laziness every night, I'm not going to get a victory over it because I'm not fighting it. I'm not running the race like Paul says. So if I don't endeavor to fight it, I'm in trouble. A lot of times the Satan will, will attack believers by giving you shame that when you're fighting against your sin and you lose a few times, he'll put shame on you over that. And he'll try to bring you down. But that's not consistent with what the word of God says. God loves that you're fighting it. And if you backslide and you lose, do what the Gibeonites did. Repent, come back, call on the Lord for salvation and fight those fights and keep doing it and win the battles, see it happen. 
So the New Testament has the exact same concept as verse 25, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. A little bit of twist, and they tie it into love when you see it in the New Testament. If we love God and we stand for him, his will is in control, God fights our battles, he delivers our enemies, and God puts all of our enemies at our feet. Joshua struck them in verse 26. The class, he, he does this and he hits them. And we're going to see the word struck a few times. The implication of striking is that he took a weapon or some sort of tool and he killed them quickly, mercifully. They did not die on a cross. They died after being struck. And then they were hung dead on the cross. Um, there's no place in the lives of Israel for false kings. And there's no place for them hiding in the caves amongst the shepherds. So there is no God but God. There is no Savior but Jesus. There's no guide but the Holy Spirit. There's no exceptions. So the hanging on the trees, they make it public. We kind of do this spiritually too. If you look at the history of Christianity, it's okay to relish in the fact that really polytheism has been defeated on the planet. Can we hang that one on a tree and say, praise God, we don't worship whatever God we please? Right? Or you can say, you know, it's kind of good that Gnosticism is kind of was eradicated from the early church. Praise the Lord for that. Hang that one on a tree and make it public that that one's gone. Um, having spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them, Colossians 2:15, openly triumphing over them in it. When we beat really nasty, ugly stuff, or somebody comes to Christ and throws a, their life of sin away, we should celebrate when that happens. And that's, a, that's an amazing thing, a public display. Slavery disappeared, let's do a parade in the street. World War II won and the Nazis got eliminated, throw some confetti on that parade. Like, let's celebrate when evil gets killed. When we lose the ability to celebrate the eradication of a great evil on this earth, something's broken in our church, right? So... At some point, I think when materialism dies, we should have a party, but just not buy anything, right? <laughs> we, when, when we finally see that there are other ways to deal with an unwanted child than killing it, we should celebrate when that gets eliminated from our culture because the armies of God are moving forward and the hearts of people can change. And we should expect and run after that when we do it, right? And praise God when it happens. I'm still waiting for atheism to die or I'm going to create my own Christianity. When that dies, I'm going to celebrate that too. We should have a party when that's just gone. When atheism is proven wrong, and if you read the book of Revelation, I'm saying, precious, that that's going to go, there will be no atheists at the end of days, right? That will just disappear. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of atheists, you know, in foxholes, and there weren't a lot of atheists in the ancient world. And those people that got killed with heavenly hailstones, they're not atheists. Like, th when that dies, we should celebrate when that happens. Praise the Lord. People honor and, and, and look at the name of Yahweh. Uh, verse 27, they're following the law. So let's add a fourth kind of principle here. Uh, we light the beacons when we're in trouble. Yeshua saves. We trust him. Evil can't hide. Uh, and then <laughs> we have some heart work to do. And we have to look at ourselves and we got to do that. So the rest of this chapter is a progression of, it's the montage of them conquering this part of the Holy Land. And this is an amazing passage. But um, let me, 
before we get there, there's just this idea that God's never going to leave us or forsake us. And if we're Gibeonites, we can trust in that and we can know that God will be our salvation. I love that idea. And, and in order to understand the rest of the chapter, we should understand that Joshua in the, in the Hebrew and Jesus in the Greek are both Yeshua, right? It comes to that word. And when we say Joshua or Jesus or Yeshua, it means the Lord is my salvation, and that's what we get in this chapter. The Lord's my salvation. So, and I love this, because we hear this in our culture right now, like, say his name. And I'm thinking, yeah, when we say the name of Jesus, we're simply saying the Lord's my salvation. That's actually about all it takes sometimes to get into it with people. What about this, this, and this, this? The Lord's my salvation. The Lord will save me. The Lord's my salvation. That's an antagonizing thing for people who do not trust in the Lord. That's a very difficult concept. So when we say the Lord is my salvation and we say his name, then he reveals that it's true to us and as many people around us as possible. The Lord is my salvation. So there's tons of towns in this area, scores of towns. We only see a few names. It looks like a long litany of things, but it's really a pretty short list. So one question which we have with the end of the chapter is, why are some of the cities not named and other ones are named? Look at the list of kings at the beginning of the chapter. Notice that there's a king of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is not named as being conquered at the end of the chapter. Why? So here's another thing. Gibeon repents and is saved, and the city of Gibeon became a Levitical city. Like it's a city that was cherished. So one thought is, well, are these cities the cities that will be future Levitical cities? Is that how you break it down? There's some weight to that argument, but they're not all Levitical cities. What's the pattern? So Paul uses this language around strongholds and conquerors. So Paul read the chapter 10, and he writes this whole thing in 2 Corinthians where he uses all the language from this chapter, and he builds a spiritual lesson around it. It reads, part of it is this, just a sample. Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal like they are in chapter 10, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's the rest of this chapter. We're just going to pull down some strongholds. Casting down every argument on high that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So that's what chapter 10 is. We're tearing down strongholds. They're bringing things into captivity. They're putting feet on heads, all that sort of thing. We get a ton of battles in our heart, and I'm going to suggest to you, and by the way, don't take this with too much. This is totally just me making stuff up. But when I read through this, I th said, well, where's the pattern? Why these cities? So I started, you know, geeking out on it. This is what kept me up till 2 in the morning. And I started to think, well, maybe there's something in their names because we've seen that before. There's totally something in their names. So, But I'm not saying that that's God's truth. This is just my interpretation of it, and I was totally blessed by it. What we're going to see here, I will suggest, is that if our job is to relentlessly attack evil, but not to do it against other people, but to attack the evil in our own hearts, then what we're seeing here is a list of types of hearts that we can have that stand themselves against the knowledge of God. And that each of the names of these cities actually points to or implies a kind of heart that we can have that gets in the way of following the Lord, which explains why it's not some Levitical city pattern and why there isn't a complete list that even matches the front of the book. But spiritually, 
I'll be darned if this isn't kind of a complete list of these kinds of things. So work with me on this. The first one's the most difficult. On that day, verse 28, Joshua took Makeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them and all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Notice that we don't name the king of Makeda, right? Makeda, we know, is the place of shepherds. We know there were false kings that hid there. We know that those false kings were killed, but that was kind of the last piece. And we know that when our heart worships and follows after other kings, we have idols that we worship that are humans, that that can take our heart away from the king, right? And that's so easy in the Christian world because you get teachers you like to listen to. You get worship leaders that you think are amazing and you come closer to God because they lead you into worship. We get people that we're just blessed at how they serve at the church and we think they're great. When those people start defying God and go hiding in caves and fall into sin, we're devastated by that, yes? So this place of shepherds there is where we have a problem in our heart that goes right against the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.5, the most important thing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, Deuteronomy 6.5. Your hearts, therefore, shall be wholly devoted to the Lord God, to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as it is this day. 1 Kings 8.61. So God loves a devoted heart. And this first one has this whole story before it to show how to devote your heart is to take those false kings and kill them in your heart. Get rid of them. Stop following after humans. Start following after God. So Makeda can represent a false worshiping heart. What are you supposed to do to it? Will you strike it? What do you strike it with? A sword. What's the sword in the Bible connected with spiritually? The word of God. You dig into the word of God and it gets rid of your false kings because you worship what God says instead of what people say. And it's so easy to listen to teachers. Like I'm doing this commentary for you tonight. It's so easy to just listen to the commentary, but you got to get into the word yourself too or you don't get the full fruit of it. So you go back during the week and you're in it all week and then you're like, oh, I'm just wore out. My brain's hurting. I'm going to go take a night on a Sunday night and let Sean just make it easy for me for one night. But you go back into it and do it with diligence the next week. And you get into the word of God. You utterly destroy the false worshiping heart. You let none of it remain. Do you see that? So it's instructions for what to do when you have a place of shepherds. When you're following the shepherds instead of the king. Right? So Makeda, false worshiping heart. Verse 29. Joshua passed from Makeda implying some sort of progression once you start worshiping the Lord alone and Israel with him to Libna and they fought against Libna and the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel and he struck it and all of his people who were in it with the edge of the sword the word of God and let none remain in it but he did this to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho Libna if you look up the word Libna it means concrete or pavement and we see in the New Testament this image of a hardened heart right uh, in Exodus 7.13, we already saw it. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart, God says to Pharaoh. In Psalm 95, verse 8, uh, is quoted by Hebrews 4.7, uh, and, and, and we see that idea of not hardening a heart. Uh, the good Samaritan has compassion in Luke 10.33, and his heart softens towards the people around him. You can have God alone as your God, but never have your heart softened to other people in the kingdom. It's progressive. You've got to deal with that, right? The prodigal son could have been angry, or the prodigal son's father could have been angry at the prodigal son for spending all his money and being an idiot, but he's not. His heart softens toward his son, and it melts towards his son, and he loves his son. 
and we get this beautiful image. That's Luke 15, 20. God loves a soft and a moldable heart, a listening and compassionate heart. Libna is a hard heart. It's concrete. What do you do with it? You strike it. You don't let any of it remain. I just, that'll, I just, I, again, I was getting a little geeky. If some of this gets incoherent. It's because it's getting later at night. But I, at this point, I'm like, okay, that's two. Let's see if this goes all the way through to the end. Verse 31. Then Joshua passed from Libna, progressive, and all Israel with him to Lachish. And they camped against it and they fought against it. This one, there's a battle that's going on. They're fighting. There's some struggle that happens here. Verse 32. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done in Libna. Lachish means invincible or obstinate. Invincible in the positive sense, obstinate in the negative sense. Stubborn, right? And stubborn is different than hard. Stubborn, a hard heart doesn't even feel the emotion. A stubborn heart might feel it, but doesn't move. So the invincible, Lachish, is vinced. <laughs> it gets beaten. And, 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 and notice that verse 23 has, this is one of the kings. It is one of the, the cities that's part of that original list. So they go after this capital city. The kings are dead, so there's no king to name. Then Horam, the king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until none of them were left remaining. So another twofer on this one. Gezer is not destroyed. It's, there's a record of it later in the Bible. So the king of Gezer is simply the people that were obstinate, but the city never gets destroyed. It gets used. So God's being incredibly selective. One of the reasons we don't have a list of 50, 60 cities here is because God doesn't destroy every city. He destroys the false idols. That was the command. He, he utterly destroys the people that defy God in these cities. But the cities are left behind, some of them vacant. Because at this point, again, there's a mass migration going on. Horam means exalted. So the, the king of Gezer means cut off. <laughs> so the exalted one gets cut off trying to save the invincible or obstinate city. For Isaiah 26.5, for he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city, he lays it low. God does this all the time. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance, Proverbs 30, 13. Now I, Paul, myself, am leading you with meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in the presence am lowly among you, being absent, I am bold towards you, 2 Corinthians 10, 1. God loves a humble heart. So God loves a devoted heart, a compassionate heart, and a humble heart. We can be devoted and we can be compassionate, and then we start to think really nice of ourselves. Notice this one's a struggle. It, it is, there's actually a battle that gets fought at this city. God knows our hearts. He knows when we're on the right track in the kingdom, we're going to start getting some, we're pretty proud of ourselves. We elevate ourselves. We're doing all right, you know. God doesn't want that. It's an ongoing struggle. Lachish then is an obstinate heart. You strike it with the word of God and force yourself into a humble heart. Don't get too lofty. Don't let loftiness make you stubborn thinking you know better than everyone around you. Humble yourself to what the word of God says. Verse 34, we'll go again. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with them. And they encamped against it. Another battle, they fought against it. 
And they took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were in it, he utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done at Lachish. Eglon <laughs> means like a cow. So it's, this is a great word, vituline. Vituline means as though you were a cow. Same root word is used in Exodus 32 for the golden calf, but not in a religious sense. It, it means dull, stupid, or muted. It's not a Levitical city. It never gets used that way. That broke my Levitical city pattern because the other ones are Levitical cities later on. Uh, the Lord doesn't deliver this one as he does in verse 30 and 32. There's no deliverance here. It's thick and uninterested, and it doesn't really get saved in any way. You see the slight differences between these cities? God loves an engaged, wide-awake, interested heart. Do you ever have days where you're just not interested in anything? You just want to thickly mute yourself and not even engage, right? Some of you are nodding your heads, and it's almost all guys. Not to say anything about gender, but seriously, all the guys in the room just kind of were going, yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny. All right. God loves an engaged heart. Eglon is a dull cow heart, right? What do you do with it? You kill it and you utterly destroy it. You get rid of it. It's, it's something that will burn your days and your years. Let's do another one, verse 36. So Joshua went up against Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron and they fought against it and they took it and they struck it with the edge of the sword. It's king, all its cities, so multiple cities, and all the people who were in it and left none remaining according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. In this one, notice that it's not just the city getting destroyed, but the people that are engaging in this kind of heart. They also have to get out of your life. So Hebron means association or joining place. It's a place where you connect things. And in the context of a spiritual battle, it is engaging or compromising or joining with the enemy. God wants you set apart, sacred and holy. There's going to be things that a believer is tempted to bring into their life and associate with and connect with. So at this point, Hebron's become a pagan city. They're part of an alliance to defy God's people, and their name means joining or compromising or connecting. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? We're just supposed to bring those that are defying against God into submission and obedience to God, but it's not our job to be like them when we do that. In fact, it's being holy that draws them to something better than what they have. So you've got this compromised heart. <laughs> then Joshua remain, returned and all Israel were with him to Debir and they fought against it. Oh, I'm sorry. I should have wrapped that up. With Hebron, a compromised heart, what do you do with it? You kill it and you leave it and you don't hang out with other people that do it. Right? Make a separation in your life and be holy. Verse 38, then Joshua returned with all Israel with him to Debir and they fought against it and he took it and its king and all its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he had done to it to Hebron. So he did to Debir and its king as he had done also to Libna and its king. Debir means a sanctum or a sanctum city. Uh, safeness to be reserved and sit in your little world where you're nice and safe. It becomes a Levitical city later on. 
if Christ is our rest, then a city that calls itself a sanctuary is a lie. So if our holy sanctuary, with him an arm of flesh, but with us, the Lord God, to help us fight our battles, and all the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 2 Chronicles 32.8. And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to your stature? And if you are not able to do the least, then why are you anxious for the rest? Luke 12, 25 through 26. God loves a strong and courageous heart. I think that's why they end on this city. Debir is a fearful heart that seeks a sanctuary and places of rest. What do you do with that heart? You kill it and you utterly destroy it. There is no safety outside of God and God alone. So when you're looking to just make life easy, when you're wrapping up or trying to just give yourself security, whatever tool the world gives you to present the idea that the security, it's something you should be wary of. And what should you do with a heart that's fearful and worried about the future? Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect with God. You kill it. You give it up. You don't let any of it remain. I would review that, but it's on like three pages. There's compromised hearts. There's hard hearts. There's obstinate hearts. There's dull hearts. There's false worshiping hearts. Did I miss any? And then you think that list is actually pretty dang cool. In a spiritual sense, that's not a bad section. So we can add this idea that if we light the beacons, Yeshua saves us, evil can't hide, we got some battles to fight, and, I, and it's not over once we win the big victory. Like, we got to keep going through and persist in this process of getting things out of our own heart. Verse 40, we'll wrap up. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings he left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel commanded. So as the Lord commanded, connect the dots. There's a theme in Joshua. We follow God, we win, and there's no recorded losses in any of these battles. So when we do that with the right kind of heart, having fought these battles, there's no loss that can happen. We know from Joshua 7.5 where there was a loss, they specifically recorded the number of dead. In these passages, we get no record of death. All the kings, all the land, all that breathed, we see that pattern in these verses. Every hand that's feeble, every not knee will be as weak as water, Ezekiel 7.17. For it's written as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue will confess to God, Romans 14.11. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. <laughs> all these kings and their land Joshua took at one time. Because the Lord your God fought for all Israel, then Joshua returned and all Israel with him at the camp of Gigal. One of my favorite commentators said the lesson from verse 42 is, God doesn't ask us to fight all the battles at once. We just do them one at a time. And I kept rereading the sentence going, it doesn't say one at a time. It says Joshua took at one time, one fight. All of this, we got to see it as one battle. Because when we win over here, then our prideful heart kicks up. And then we beat the prideful heart and we're humble again. And then we start getting lazy over here and our dull cow heart kicks in. It's this whole thing happens at the same time. And we all, it, this is not a personality types inventory on yourself. It's all of it. 
and we all have to do it. So actually kind of that commentator, I, I think, I, it says Joshua took it one time. I'll just take that at face value. Joshua conquers them. He puts his enemy under his feet. Jesus does the same thing, and I'll just bring that point back on it with a couple verses. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power, for he, Jesus, must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. They're getting that from Joshua. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. This is a spiritual battle. The last one to go is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, that's not even a revelation reference. Joshua, like Jesus, conquers all the land and provides a historically earthly model that's rooted in history. Jesus provides a heavenly promise of the end of it all, and he roots it in history with his resurrection from the grave. So we get these historical models of these things. Yeshua took them one at a time in one stroke, in one fell soup, when he raised from the dead. All the battles were won at once. Jeshua, and that's why I don't think this is a mistake, Joshua wins all the battles at one time in verse 42. One fell swoop, he beats all of these things at once. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Another major theme, God keeps doing all the work. And God's people just run and watch. And we do the same thing. We get the honor just for carrying the water, cutting the wood, and calling on Jesus when we need him. Then verse 43, Joshua returned and all Israel back to the camp of Gilgal. At the end of it all, everybody goes home with Joshua. Same thing with Jesus. At the end of it all, we all go home with Jesus, and we go back to that place of refuge. There's a victory all at once, then they return, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and to those in heaven and to those on earth and those upon the earth, Philippians 2.10. Now, I've quoted like three verses that are all kind of the same idea. At the end of it all, everybody knows who Jesus is. There won't be any confusion and all Israel with them, we should take hope in that because if there is a parallel between Jesus and Joshua, it means we go with him. And that's the promise that we see throughout the New Testament. So keep it close. At the end of the day, if this is all going to happen that way, the world gives false heart, false kings. My heart gives false hearts, like a hard heart, stubborn heart, dull heart, compromised or fearful heart. And between all that, at the end of it, I'm going to choose Jesus. And if I can choose Jesus in all of that, then I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep running. I'm going to go with diligence until Jesus returns. And that's kind of the whole message of the entire New Testament and Old Testament put together. But we get it all in chapter 10 in one night. So this is a huge chapter. Thank you for your patience. I know this is a lot to absorb in one sitting, but you got your money's worth tonight. Um, so let's say a word of prayer. Dear King, we just thank you. We thank you for these beautiful images from the Old Testament that we can look at and we can learn from, just like Paul said we should, uh, that these things aren't here by accident. They're here to speak right into our lives, uh, and they're alive and well. Lord, we know that your word uh, is stronger than any two-edged sword, uh, and we use your word to fight our battles. So if we're not in it, how do we fight? Uh, Lord, We I pray for the church, the whole church. I pray for all denominations that call on your name, to return to your word and live it and teach it and follow it. Lord, we need people that are wholeheartedly committed to you. So I just pray for those folks. Lord, I pray for each person that is in our life that is struggling with following you. So Lord, I pray we think of our families and our friends. And Lord, we give you that battle. And Lord, we just want to see it. We want to be there for when they give their life over to you. 
Um, but Lord, as we each can imagine people like that in our life, Lord, I just want to lift them up. May their, their heart uh, be melted for you. Uh, may, they, may you bring them to a place in their life where they're ready to just give you their lives. Lord, help us to do it. That even though we get to see those kinds of victories, and that's fun, uh, Lord, we have more work to do on our own heart than we have on anybody else's. So Lord, help our heart to be true and pure. Help us to not accept hearts that are still in the kingdom that are ready to rise up against us. Uh, so Lord, help our hearts to just be devoted, pure, uh, righteous, uh, committed, and joyful. Lord, that we can be alive and well and living in your kingdom and in your, your salvation. Lord, help it to be fun. I pray for a retreat coming up in a couple weeks. May we just be blessed by that. What a great time to fellowship and be together. Lord, as we pray together tonight, um, I pray that we can trust each other with the things we need prayer for. Uh, may you just help us to minister one to another uh, as you tell our saints to do. So Lord, we're gonna take some time and pray. And Lord, we, want, we don't wanna leave here without bringing our petitions to you because you tell us to. And all we have to do is cry out to Jesus and you will run to save and you are mighty to save. So Lord, we ask, we petition, we praise you and we lift you up in prayer, Lord, because we wanna see your victories. And nothing short of that, Lord. We just want to live the kind of life that our forefathers have and our foremothers have. And we want to be the kinds of people that we read about in your scriptures, Lord. The good ones, not the bad ones. And Lord, we just pray we can lift you up and honor you in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.